0: Father, we can sing Christ is mine precisely because we are His. And we want to sing Christ is mine this morning precisely because He has sung in His heart on His way here and on His way to the cross and through the grave and through His resurrection and on His way to your right hand He was singing You are mine forevermore. And Father, as we walk As we look forward to walking beside you in Zion, we walk now by faith in our great high priest forever and in our king who is forever. And we thank you for the spirit that he has sent that opens our eyes to see what's in this word and to hear this word as the word from Christ in whose name we pray, amen. You may be seated. Open with me in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 2. We'll be in verses 18 through 29 today, Revelation chapter 2, verses 18 through 29. A brief word of thanks, and then a story to set the sermon up. Thanks to Dan and Gail Wilkins and all those involved yesterday in yesterday's military appreciation lunch, one of the many good works of witness to Jesus going on in our midst at Heritage Bible Church Your love is apparent, and our Lord is glorified. And if you were invited to that lunch yesterday and decided to join us this morning, and if you don't have a church home, we would welcome you to make this church your home. Please make yourself at home among us. Well, every war brings with it some new tactics. But often enough, the new stuff is just the old stuff recooked. The Revolutionary War, for example, was a revolutionary war, but not entirely in the way that it was conducted. Not in every way. Trying to fool the enemy was not new. In 1780, a British spy was in league to produce a major strategic debacle on the Hudson River. And this spy's name was Major Andrew. He was, by all accounts, a model British soldier, impeccable manners, and he had the misfortune of getting caught doing his duty for his king. He got caught, and there was a conflict between Washington and Washington's staff about what to do with this Major Andrew. Several staffers pleaded that his life ought to be spared because of his exceptional character, but Washington would have none of it. If Andrew had succeeded in his mission, he reasoned, he may well have changed the course of the war. So when Washington's staff asked, may he be shot like an officer rather than hanged as a spy, Washington would have none of that either. Regardless of his personal attractiveness, he explained, Major Andrew was no more or less than a spy. And so he was hanged the next day. That's an adapted version of an account by Joseph Ellis. Well, Washington had a zero-tolerance policy for imposters in his midst. He had zero tolerance because he knew what others did not, apparently. He knew what was at stake. An enemy was no less an enemy for his good looks or his loyalty to his own king. That's what made him a good enemy. An impostor was an imposter. Well, so it is in the church of Jesus Christ. And we know that an enemy stands ever ready to infiltrate our own ranks here. But our Christ, who sees what we do not, has a zero-tolerance policy for imposters. For he knows what's at stake, and he has some orders for us today. So let's read together, Revelation chapter 2, verses 18 through 29. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira, write the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love, and faith, and service. who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan. To you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Well, if you're just joining us, this is the fourth letter of Jesus in a series of seven letters that Jesus composed for churches in the first century. Churches from a different time and place, yet churches with our same temptations And pressures. We are listening to Jesus' words for his church and for this church this morning. For he says, He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And so we are all ears this morning. As we do with each letter, and as we have done with each letter to this point, we'll begin by getting a sense for the city in which this particular church is found. So let's begin by exploring Thyatira, a city with secrets. In our series so far, we've been to some prominent cities. We've been to ports. We've been to capitals. We've been to cities with streets lined with magnificent temples to local gods. Cities where Caesar was so central that they would kill a Christian for refusing his worship. Thyatira was different. In ancient literature, it was called an unimportant community. There's a reference. Thyatira and other unimportant communities. (laughs) Uh, It's the uh, figurehead for communities that don't get named. Safer in some ways. Not a big city, comparatively speaking at least. But it's on the way to a big city. It was a speed bump. On the way to Pergamum, the city we learned about last week, literally a speed bump. As attackers were on their way to get Pergamum, they would have to go through Thyatira, which would take them some time, which would give Pergamum time to get its stuff in order. That was Thyatira's role. And so over and over again, this city was destroyed and then rebuilt. Destroyed and then rebuilt. Rebuilt. Why anyone would stay in Thyatira if they had any other options, I don't know. But this is how it went. This city did not pride herself in her size. It prided itself in its, well, what we shall call, its secret sauce. It was an industrial city. It did not make its money off of religious tourism like some other cities. This city made stuff. Specifically, they made stuff of bronze and they had a particular method for dealing with the metal, a particular recipe so that the bronze from this place could be recognized from anywhere. So they had a secret sauce and add to this their location. They weren't a prominent location, but they were on the way to a prominent city. They were on a prominent road for trade. And so Thyatira was a hopping business community. A business community built on trade guilds. Little clubs for conducting your business. Exclusive clubs. The way that the business was conducted. If you wanted to make something and sell it, you were going to be in a trade guild. If you didn't want to make something or sell something, that was okay. Just don't complain about not being able to feed your family. If you wanted to make something or sell something, but didn't want to be in a trade guild, just don't complain about not being able to feed your family. This is how it happened. That's how business was done. Thyatira was the city with the largest number of trade guilds among towns her size in all of Asia, inscriptions show us. For Christians in this city, persecution was not a problem. In that respect, this was a safer city than some of the other cities in which Christians lived that we've learned about so far. But it was not spiritually safer. In some ways, it may have been spiritually more dangerous. Persecution was not a problem. But you see, exclusion was a problem. That is, exclusion from the marketplace The equation was different here. It wasn't Caesar or persecution. It was trade guilds or poverty. And here's why that's a little complicated for Christians. And more complicated than it sounds. If you wanted a spot in the marketplace, you had to be in a trade guild. And if you were going to be in a trade guild, you were going to run with the trade guild. Which meant eating together. And beginning those meals with a drink poured out as an offering to a local God, like grace before a meal. Try not participating in that and participating in a trade guild. It meant eating meat sacrificed to an idol. We know from Scripture, in Paul's letter to the Corinthians, that eating meat sacrificed to an idol is not itself problematic, for we know that an idol, a false God, Is nothing at all. And there were contexts in which this would be perfectly fine in the first century. In this environment, it was not fine. Christians are free to eat meat to the glory of God, even meat sacrificed to a nothing. But Christians are not to participate in the ceremonies associated with idol worship, which is what this entailed. Here, to eat was to affirm. Here, to eat was to participate in the worship ceremony of a false god. And running with the guild meant joining your peers in all manner of debauchery, drunkenness, sexual immorality, and the like. It all went together in Thyatira. For now, that's enough on Thyatira, a city whose business is built on a secret bronze recipe, a city where the secret to making it was trade guilds. And another city where Jesus had his people and where he wanted his church. And another city where being the church was difficult. Where there were pressures for being a Christian. Well, What do these Christians need to see right now? What do these readers of this letter from the Lord Jesus need to see? Verse 18. The words of the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. This is what they needed to see. We've explored the city of Thyatira. Now we're looking into Jesus's eyes. We are looking, seeing even into Jesus's eyes. And when we look into Jesus' eyes, we are looking into the eyes of the one who sees everything with those eyes. His eyes are a flame of fire. He'll be described a little bit later as the one who searches mind and heart. There's a theme in this letter of secret things. A secret recipe for bronze. Jesus who sees all of our secrets. He searches mind and heart. That could be a terrifying thing or that could be a comforting thing. It all depends on who he is that sees and who you are. And as I hope that you'll pick up, if you're new with us this morning and new to Christianity and new to the Bible, the secret to being fully exposed before the only holy son of God who sees all. All mind and heart every thought and feeling of every human person the secret to this is not having perfectly pure thoughts and feelings it is casting yourself on the only one who ever has jesus who shed his blood for us jesus the lamb of god as we have sung and prayed this morning This is a reminder these Christians received in the first chapter of this letter and it is a reminder that they would receive over and over again throughout the whole book of Revelation. What happens when you are laid bare before God turns on whether you are tied to Jesus Christ, the only Holy One. But here, this is intended to be a bit intimidating and it's because of the situation on the ground at the church. What else do we know about Jesus? We're told a few things about him in addition to his eyes being a flame of fire. When we look into Jesus' eyes, we are looking into the eyes of the one whose feet are like burnished bronze. I'm sure you didn't miss that. Jesus knows where his people live. No coincidence. And the particular words here for burnished bronze aren't used anywhere else in ancient literature. Underneath the text here, the Greek language is utterly unique. And our best guess is that it's something like their trademark. It's the only place to get this kind of bronze work. A bronze trademark. So let me ask you this. What is your secret sauce? What is your trademark What's the thing that you've worked so hard to achieve that you are famous for at work? A good thing. What's the skill that makes you great in your field? What's the degree that is your most prized credential? What is your military service even? Or if you don't have any of these things, every special credential you wish you had, what is that? Let's go big picture. How about all of those secret technologies that make our military the strongest in the world? All of that, melt all of that down, melt it together, and that's what Jesus makes his boots out of. Those are Jesus' shoes as burnished bronze. Jesus is saying to his church, I am most more valuable than, than the most valuable thing that you have or could have. And I am stronger than your strongest armor. Your city rises and falls on a secret. The universe rises and falls on me. That's what he's saying. Just a lime and we might be tempted to breeze over it, but it's so, so heavy. But the glory of Jesus' boots is seen against more than just the backdrop of the context at Thyatira. There's actually a broader biblical backdrop to this reference to burnished bronze on the feet of the Son of God. Daniel saw a terrifying vision of a man with a face like the appearance of lightning. His eyes like flaming torches. His arms and legs Like the gleam of burnished bronze. And the sound of his words like the sound of a multitude. And Ezekiel saw something similar in an apocalyptic vision that he had. And said, such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of God. And I heard the voice of one speaking. So John's vision of Jesus and all of his majestic glory. As he has described him face like the sun, feet like burnished bronze, his voice like raging waters. This is not new to John. This is something that men have seen before, prophets have seen throughout the Bible story. And it was Yahweh. It was the only Lord God. And now here is Jesus showing up in that glory. What is it saying about himself? Our belief that Jesus is himself God the Son does not turn on a few words in a few books of our New Testament. It turns on the whole of the Bible's testimony. This is the Son of God. When we look into Jesus' eyes, we are looking into the eyes of the one who is the very Son of God as he's introduced. In this particular town of Thyatira, there were two gods that were worshipped, Sons of Zeus, sons of God. A nod to the competition in Thyatira. Jesus, the Lord of glory, is the Lord of Thyatira and of Greenville and of Taylors and of Greer. I'll throw Traveler's Rest in there since we stayed there for a month before moving to Greer. He is also the Lord of Traveler's Rest. Well, given who Jesus is and we have seen a bit of him and given all that we have seen and given all that Jesus can see, what shall Jesus say to this church before us? What will he say? Now, verses 19 through 25, hearing Jesus' words on love and lust. Sometimes... Um, a title like that to represent a section of scripture can be a bit abbreviated. There's a little more going on here than that. But there are two things that Jesus will do. He will commend them for love and he will criticize them, critique them, correct them for a host of problems that we might call lust. He has harsh words coming, even the harshest yet. But the first things Jesus says are happy. Verse 19. I know your works, he writes, your love and faith and service and patient endurance and that your later works exceed the first. Friends, we can't miss this opportunity to recognize in Jesus' pastoral care for this church A particular pattern a pattern we've seen throughout his letters so far the first thing Jesus does when he writes to a church is point these churches to himself he points the churches to himself the next thing he does is commend what is commendable he praises what is praiseworthy he says good job where there is a job well done The one who sees it all also sees the good and he sees it for the good that it is and he tells them so. And then, and then Jesus corrects. The takeaway for us is straightforward. As one commentator put it better than I could. When we have reason to rebuke or to criticize anyone, we must make it clear that we are doing so not because we dislike him or her but because we like him, not because we hate him, but because we love him, not because we think that he's useless, but because we think that he has great use in him, not because we wish to hurt him, but because we wish to help him. That is why criticism will often be most effective when it begins with praise. When we do this with one another, it is not manipulation, And when someone encourages you ahead of a critique, receive it as grace. I suppose unless they are trying to be manipulative, then it's a little more complex. But you receive it as grace because what they're saying very well may be true. If we don't have anything good to say, maybe we need to look harder. For Jesus who sees all, Often sees plenty to commend. Here, four things. I can't think of any meaningful human relationship in which this is not helpful. This week, uh, I confess. Uh, I think it was Friday. I was overly harsh with my kids, and I could read it on their faces. Correction, I think, felt like rejection. Um. I was frustrated over the matter at hand, but I was more troubled by that thought. So we huddled up together and hugged and talked about what I'm trying to do and about how dad can be better at that and how I don't mean to reject them. I mean to correct them for their good. And then I came across this passage and knew that I had an illustration for Sunday. Maybe God's word was at work in my heart and I didn't know it. Well, parents, you will know that it is easy to be reactive and corrective without being proactive and constructive. But we contend in this merely only negative direction in almost any of our relationships. Hear this, before Jesus says his harsh words, Jesus offers happy words and he means them. A model for how we talk about other churches. Jesus is, after all, talking to a church here. Consider that maybe the church at Ephesus condescended toward this church because they have the opposite strengths and weaknesses. It's a model for how we talk about other churches. It's a model for how we talk about our own church. And it's a model for how we talk to and about one another in the home or in the halls here in these happy words, Jesus commends their love. He commends their faith. He commends their service. He commends their patient endurance. And all of this, as you read Revelation, if you do so over and over again, this language, these commendations are tied to the witness of the church. This church, in an important respect, even given their troubles, was pursuing a faithful Witness In real ways, they're getting so much so right and Jesus cheers it on. The church at Ephesus had their doctrine right, but Jesus said, you've lost the love you had at first. This church, their later works are greater than their first works. The problem is flipped. Now, Jesus' words on lust. He says... I know your love, but, but, I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. They have an imposter and they're cool with it. I don't know exactly why. Surely there are different reasons throughout the congregation that they're cool with it. Maybe for some, they want to avoid backlash. They're afraid of what will go down if they confront this person Jezebel, this gal with some influence. Maybe for some, they're proud of their flexibility and their tolerance on sexual immorality. Well, that can happen in churches with crosses and steeples over time. This situation that we're listening in on is kind of like listening to a doctor reaming out his patient who has neglected his counsel over and again. And the patient is about to die. Listen to me. I'm not kidding around. You tolerate this issue. You're not doing what you must do. So much is at stake. They've got an imposter and they're cool with it. What is this imposter doing? What is this Jezebel character doing? Well, she's teaching and seducing the servants. She's teaching what he calls the deep things of Satan. Oh, she didn't say, now my teaching, as opposed to the pastor's teaching, uh, is the deep things of Satan. No, she said, my teaching, as opposed to the preacher's teaching, are the deep things of God. So often, false teaching will come cloaked with an admission that this is new and special and a fix for what Christians have wrong everywhere and have had wrong. Beware interesting teaching, in particular teaching that calls evil good and good evil. The serpent is crafty. His ways across the years are consistent. Even if the faces and the voices and the names change. And this character, Jezebel, probably did not go by that name in the church, but everyone knew who she was. Jezebel is shorthand for a, for a woman who would lead astray the people of God. Jezebel in the Old Testament, a woman, she infiltrated Israel. King Ahab married her against God's direction, and she enticed him to worship Baal, and together they led the whole nation into false worship. Or to put it another way, they led the whole nation to leave the Lord. When God's prophets spoke, they killed them. And that's where this goes. Eventually, if you embrace a false god under your roof and it takes root, you end up expelling those who worship the only true God. The Lord had killed Jezebel. She was thrown down from a tower. And when they came for her body, there wasn't anything to bury for she was eaten by dogs. It sound harsh? God did that to her. It is harsh. Because God is a ferocious lover. That's why it's harsh. And that's how much he loves his people. And that's how committed he is to bringing about their salvation. And that's how much he loves you if you're his. Are you hearing this? He is jealous for you. See his love for you on the cross. His ferocious love as he goes all the way. What an extreme work he did to suffer for you there and to take your sins and to rescue you from Satan's grip and see him persisting throughout your life, even throwing Jezebel on her sickbed for death and those who follow her to rescue you from her seductions. This is not about right and wrong, merely. We are so wrong to speak About sexual ethics merely, merely in terms of right and wrong. That is a part of it. We can't lose it. It's not less than that. But it is so much more than that. It's about you and it's about him. And when it comes to you and him, it's that you would worship him only. Not with someone else, but like a marriage. And oh yeah... That's why Jesus cares about marriage for his people. That's why he wants you to stay together, to picture his faithful love for us. If you're visiting with us and you aren't a Christian, this is the heart of, I'll say Jesus's, because not all of us Christians get it right. Jesus's sexual ethic for his people It's a gift of God not only for our proper enjoyment but as a way to comprehend a small part of what it means for God to be faithful to us. He is a jealous lover for his bride, his church. So as you listen, don't miss this. Don't miss this. Friends, let's not miss the time marker here. Jesus is not impatient with this church. He doesn't just come out swinging from impatience like a burst of frustration with a church that's in his way. No, he has already called her to repent, but she has not and his patience is up. And so verse 22, behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed and those who commit adultery with her, I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works and I will strike her children dead. Those who commit adultery worth with her is not itself likely a reference to sexual immorality between this Jezebel character and others in the church, but of spiritual idolatry, the worship of other gods, full blown participation in the trade guilds of the city. Jezebel is about to come down with something and so are her minions. Those who won't repent may lose their lives. And God does that sometimes. Do not interpret every sickness or death as a specific punishment, discipline, response to a specific sin. But as we get sick, we can always ask, is there something for which I can repent? We can always ask that. That's what Jesus will do. Well, what do you need to do? What do you need to do? What would this text have you do? It depends on who you are. I find four characters here. Are you Jezebel? Scheming for ways to deceive the people of God? You need to repent. Are you one of Jezebel's children? Well, just the same. While there's time. Are you one of Jesus' servants who she's deceiving? He says that, deceiving my servants. There's a distinction. You need to repent as well. If you have taken the bait. Or are you one of the tolerant. One of those standing by. As it goes on. For fear of disrupting things. Or maybe. Out of pride. In your tolerance. To you Jesus says this. Verse 24. But to the rest of you in Thyatira. Who do not hold this teaching who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan. To you I say this, I do not lay on you any other burden. This is the burden. Hold fast what you have until I come and put out Jezebel. That's the burden of the letter. In other words, the same thing. Repent of standing by as others are washed away in deception. We are all here for one another. It's a good reason to be deeply involved in your church, not merely by showing up to things, but by showing up for people to get in front of them and to know their names and to be a person that when you show up to church, will notice when certain friends, loved ones in church are not here. I'm not sure how else you do that except for a shepherding group. Um, Shepherding groups aren't written in the Bible. But they're the practical way that we're seeking as a congregation to put this kind of situation to work. To be the kind of church and the kind of people that we see on the page of scripture. This helps us when someone is with you week in and week out in a shepherding group and then they're not. And then you learn why. Go after them and help them. Plead with them. Tell them the truth while they believe a lie. Friends, we should cancel Sunday school and summer camp and everything if we permit an imposter in our midst. It's all going down. Last week, we used the illustration of a ship with a great missile defense system, but that's taking on water. If we're taking on water, we've got to plug the hole. It's job number one. And so he says, I lay on you no other burden. Hold fast what you have until I come. And it's a process that proves who is who. This is when we consider these kinds of passages. It's often the case that we're asking ourselves and you may be asking yourself. Which one am I? Am I one of Jezebel's children following her to the end? Or am I one of Jesus's servants seduced, but being rescued? Well, the way to know is to hear the word of God and then respond And how you respond will bear out which one you are. Jesus makes that distinction. John, the writer of this letter, the one who received it from Jesus, writes three letters in our New Testaments that come before Revelation. In his first letter, he writes this, of false teachers who went out. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But when they went out, they went out that it might become plain that they are all not of us. Kind of a long way of saying, listen, the reason they left the faith was to show that they were never among us. They were never of us in the first place. And we couldn't tell until they walked away. And so part of what we do as a church and what, if you're new to Christianity or a church, we call church discipline, is merely call a spade a spade. Call sin what it is until we turn and stay with the Lord or until we run because we were never his in the first place. The ones who endure to the end are Jesus's or in the language of revelation here to the one who conquers, to the one who holds fast is Jesus's. This church is near death and Jesus is bursting into the room to save her. her. He is yelling and he is calling out orders. He has zero tolerance for imposters because he is totally committed in love to his people. You see, when I first read these seven letters while preparing this series, honestly, my thought at one moment was, golly, these are some harsh words to start out with, but you know, they are harsh and they're needed. And they're also loving. And I love that. Two reflections now. Two reflections. First, a word of warning. Let's reflect on this issue of trade guilds specifically. And I imagine you were making some connections in your own mind as I was unfolding the context here in Thyatira. And there are connections to two dimensions of life in today's marketplace, as we might put it. And uh, we'll call them requirements and environments for business. Requirements that come with licensure. For example, there are many fields where this would apply. In the medical field, pharmacists that may be required to dispense of abortive fashions, OBGYNs who may in years to come be required to perform abortions. There are credentialing organizations that will hold before you a requirement they will hold uh, you hostage until you sign on the dotted line and commit yourself to something that you can't and it may put you out of your field at some point a field that you're in and it may mean that you don't go into a field that you wanted to go into I hate that we need Christians in those fields And every Christian needs to be doing their work each in our own way uh, as citizens working to create an environment where Christians can do all kinds of things. But licensure is becoming an issue in some fields. Licensed counselors or teachers in our school system that may be bound to affirm or even teach falsehoods about gender, marriage, and human sexuality. These kinds of requirements put Christians in terribly difficult positions. And I sympathize with some of you who are in them now. Over the last five years, I've done some writing on this stuff. And I have gotten lots of questions and visits from members of my church where I came from over intricacies of their business. And, and just open it up and let us help you think it through. It's not always cut and dry. We must be careful in thinking these things tr- through. Requirements for conducting business in the marketplace. Then there are Environments. For conducting business in the marketplace. For example, a company culture that demands joining in sexual immorality. There's the annual company trip. You don't have to go out after dinner to the strip. But that's where the rest of the group is going. And you know it will cost you in the company to stay back. Or there's a networking weekend with reps from other companies. There are official meetings that you're officially expected to be at. But there are all kinds of unofficial meetings that you are unofficially expected to be at. And it's in those meetings that decisions on business are ultimately made or lost. That make the difference between making it in your field or not. A friend in medical sales would work his booth at a trade weekend. And he said that at these hotels where these trade gatherings came together, it was incredible Uh, In the halls. He would even receive knocks at the door. From young women. After hours. Clothed in but a robe. What? Spiritual danger. Get out of the field? I don't know. You don't have to open the door. But for this particular guy. With his particular history. I said get out. Get out. And he's doing fine. He found another Job. That's a bit of reflection on the problem of these trade gills. Now a word of now a word of comfort. A word of warning, now a word of comfort. Consider that Jesus' terrifying words here are a reason for comfort. They're harsh words, but they're better than a word where Jesus lets us go. Take comfort in these words from Hebrews chapter twelve. If you are left without discipline in which you have all par- participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and were respected by them. And we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. That's a good word to a father as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint. But rather be healed. If you are here this morning and you are hearing the words of Jesus and they are heavy to you because of your sin, heavy to you because you're being seduced and even kind of liking it, but you know you must turn. And if your knees are weak and you're feeling crushed, strengthen your weak knees. Remember, you're a son of the Father. Remember, This harsh, hard word is a word of discipline that is special to those who belong to him. The fact of your discomfort may well be a sign that you have eternity with your father waiting for you. And that is very much better than whatever it is you're wrestling with right now. Turn to him. Jesus is more valuable than the most valuable thing that you have Remember Jesus' pattern in these letters. He points us to himself. He praises that which is praiseworthy. He corrects that which needs correction. And there's a final thing that he does in every letter. He doesn't praise in every letter and he doesn't correct in every letter. But he does this last thing in every letter. He gives hope. Finally, verses 26 and through 29, he holds out hope. Trusting Jesus' promise of a public return. Trusting Jesus' promise of a public return. He said it in verse 25. Only hold fast what you have, key words, until I come. And now he says in verse 26, the one who conquers and who keeps my words until the end, And by the way, he speaks to the one who conquers and endures in each of the seven letters. And this is the only letter where he says, until the end, there's an accent here on his return to him, I will give authority over the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my father and I will give him the morning star, a public return. In judgment and in spectacular salvation of his people. A morning star to be seen by all. And judgment to be felt by all who would reject Christ. The security for your future is not ultimately in the trade guilds of our day. It is in Jesus And the security for your future is not in the promise of any city or nation, but in the one who has authority over the nations and who says he is coming. In fact, Jesus says that he will give to us, wow, his authority. We will rule and reign and even judge with him. A big promise for this small church in a small town that kept getting run over. A big promise. And so if we feel small in our growing town, and if our light seems dim now, it will not appear dim then. And we will not be small then. For Jesus will give us the morning star. And that morning star is Venus, by the way. So bright you can see it in the morning. And it will be brighter than the sun itself. The one who sees all will be seen by all. And so will all those who are with him when he comes. Are you with Jezebel or are you with Jesus? He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. Let's pray. Father, we are stunned at the sharpness, razor sharp words of Jesus to his people. But we thank you for all that drives them from his mouth. Incredible, ferocious love for his children. And we thank you as we have on the page before us in these words of Jesus, confirmation about just how committed he is to keeping us, just how much he loves us. Father, help us to be obedient to him Help us to trust his word. Help us to repent and not wait any longer. He is patient, but he is coming. And Father, if any of us here are seduced at the moment or are seducing, may you do what you must. Draw us to yourself and put us down so that we might not deceive the people of God, if that's what we're doing. And we look forward eagerly and help us to look forward all the more to the day when your son comes and you will give us the morning star. In Christ's name we pray, amen.